Our Father, we're thankful once again tonight for the salvation that we have through the Lord Jesus Christ, that it is not built upon human merit of any sort, <clears throat> that we do not earn it, we do not deserve it, <clears throat> but you and your grace have provided it to us, and you have, through the Holy Spirit, brought that eternal life to our souls. And we thank you now through the person of Jesus Christ. Amen. Tonight we're going to uh, develop the um, consequences of the uh, emergence of the church, and by that I mean the positional church, the positional truth that we uh, that characterize us as believers, and um, it's positional truth that's particular to the church age. Some of it is is uh, similar or the same to previous saints of previous ages, but a lot of it is different. <clears throat> so we want to stress that the church has its own unique destiny, its own unique structure, its own unique positional truth. And why that's important for us as believers is that in a hostile world system, we have to, if we're going to walk by faith, that is, uh, not try to do it ourselves, if we're going to walk by faith, we have to operate from a position of strength. But the problem is, it isn't our strength. So it's not working something up. Uh, it's not uh, working up some emotion. It's perceiving, and that comes only through contact with the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. It's only by perceiving the content of the truth of Scripture that you can get your eyes on the position of strength and operate from the position of strength and not from the position of weakness. <clears throat> um, my wife and I have been taking a little mini course on Islam and uh, just to understand it better. And it's very interesting, the more we get into this and realize uh, some of the um, content, you say, wow, what a bankrupt system and what riches we have in Christ, and we don't even realize it. That's why studying heresy also fascinated me, because if, when you study heresies or cults or anything like that, there's something that you'll always see. It's a, it's a blinding of some truth. Satan will take something that either the church hasn't articulated, the church hasn't done something here, the church hasn't done something there, just enough, you know, to be weak in an area, and then he, just like a parasite, clamps down on that. And it's a very interesting um, uh, parallel because medically, that's what parasites are. Parasites feed on weak flesh. And heresies feed on sloppy theology. And I think one of the things, that having got into Islam a little more deeply now, I realize that one of the things that Islam has done is that it doesn't even try to be seeker-friendly. One of the interesting things about Islam, it has never, ever tried to be friendly and gooey. It comes forward right from the start, blunt, truthful, and if you don't like it, get out of the way. Um, very interesting. Whereas the church that has the authoritative word of God always tries to apologize for it, back up for it, or do something. And uh, I think we're paying a price for not being a little more aggressive 
in articulating the scripture and its authority and that there's no excuse for disbelieving it. So on page 72 of the notes, we're starting to go through the, the position. We've already said that we've covered the contribution of the Holy Spirit in previous sessions. And we've said that you can remember that by this little acrostic. And that is regeneration, indwelling, baptizing, sealing, giving at least one spiritual gift to every believer, and making intercession for every believer. So there's the six things that the Holy Spirit has done. And what we're going to do now is we're going to move on to God the Son, and eventually we'll move on to God the Father. We're sort of reversing the order of the Trinity here. And as we've done that, as we introduced it last time, uh, on page uh, 72, on that paragraph just above the paragraph that begins the work of the Son, um, if you'll follow that with me again, just to remind, remind us all up front of the structure, of inherent structure of the Trinity. It is well to remember an aspect of the Trinity to help put these 18 blessings into a coherent whole. The words that the triune God chose to use in Scripture, and by that I mean when in John God uses his word for the Son, he calls him the Logos, the word. When God chooses a word for the third person of the Trinity, he uses pneuma. Pnefma is a modern Greek pronunciation. And that is spirit, which is an analog to wind. And so that's what with the sentence, the words that the triune God chose to use in Scripture direct us to think of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in terms of a speaker, his message, and the effects of the message. And you just think in terms of the fact that all content comes from a speaker. And we'll get to that more with the Father, but tonight I just want to emphasize that the speaker is the source of the message. The effect of the message is a result of the message. So there's a sequence. And by saying that speaker precedes the message, what we're saying is that you can't have a message coming out of an impersonal source. If God is the source, God the Father is always seen to be the source, the fundamental source, and it's always a personal source over against a mechanism, a gas cloud, a machine, atoms, the strong force, the weak force, gravity, whatever you want to say. Those are not the ultimate causes. And by making God the Father the ultimate cause guarantees that behind everything, every cause, every secondary and tertiary cause, there's a person behind it. You can't have information that hasn't come from a person's mind. So wherever you see design, it just didn't happen. And one of the great myths of our time that the public school has forced upon us because they are under the control of the humanist is that you can get information from non-information. You can get purpose from not the impersonal. So right up front with the Trinity, we cut all that off because ultimately whatever has happened in the world has been spoken into existence. 
God spoke the universe into existence. In the beginning was God, not in the beginning was gas. So we have a speaker as the source of all things. And then you have what the speaker speaks. And the speaker speaks a message. And the message has content and information that you can think. It engages your mind. And that content, that message, that meaning, and that purpose is centered on the second person of the Trinity. And that's why you can always tell a genuine work of the Holy Spirit from a, a charlatan operation. Because charlatan operations inherently have to deny the Trinity somewhere. And what they do to deny the Trinity is glorify the Holy Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit does not in the business of glorifying himself. The Holy Spirit is in the business of glorifying the Son. So where the Holy Spirit genuinely works, it will always be a Christ-centered, second person of the Trinity-centered operation. Then we have the bona fide area of the Holy Spirit. What does he do? The Holy Spirit, if we follow the speaker, the message, and the effects of the message, he cranks up the effects. He's the one that takes the message and does something with it. Good example, Genesis 1. In the beginning, the darkness was on the face of the earth, and the Spirit was hovering. And the Hebrew has it's vibrating, he's hovering. It's like a bird sitting there waiting, waiting for the command. And then God says, and let there be light. God speaks, the Father. And he says the word, the Logos, let there be light. And there was light. Who brought that light into existence? The Holy Spirit did. But he, he brought it in in accordance with the plan. So he's always the one who carries out the plan. And you'll always see him in that role. He doesn't, he, he's a perfect servant. He, he carries out the plan, and the plan, not him, not he, gets the glory. Not him. Okay. So now we come to the work of the Son. All these previous things that we share as Christians are actions by the Holy Spirit to implement God's plan. They actually aren't the plan itself. By looking at any of these, they make no sense whatsoever unless you have a plan behind them. You know, it's like somebody in the kitchen making something. You just don't pour stuff together and something happens. There's a recipe behind it. And so these are all actions, so to speak, in the kitchen of the world system. And there's a plan and a purpose and a, a grand scheme behind all these things that the Holy Spirit does. So look upon ribs plus spiritual gift and intercession as works the Holy Spirit does to carry out the primary plan. Now when we come to the Son, we're going to do six things again. Six things common to every Christian that constitute our position of strength. But these six things, in contrast to the six of the Holy Spirit, these are the center. This, these are the things that give meaning, purpose, and that reveal the content of the plan. So this is why, bottom page 72, the first one we're going to study is imputed righteousness. 
And I'm going to indicate that with a plus R for a reason. Imputed righteousness. And you remember we, we, we got into this a little bit back when we were dealing with the call of Abraham. Because Abraham is a model of being justified by faith. Uh, but the father is the one who does the justifying. Um, he's the one that causes justification, to, that basically got justification go. He's the one that recognizes it. But the, the, he couldn't do that if there wasn't genuine righteousness to be recognized. So that's what we're going to talk about, imputed righteousness. Now, this is unique. Imputed righteousness is unique to Christianity. All other religions do not have imputed righteousness. Islam has no imputed righteousness because Islam doesn't even have a word for sin. You can't have imputed righteousness if you don't have a concept of sin. So, so absolute righteousness is the issue. Jesus Christ brings righteousness into historic existence. Prior to this, it was an attribute of God. God was absolutely righteous. God the Father is absolutely righteous. God the Son is absolutely righteous. God the Holy Spirit is absolutely righteous. That's righteousness as a divine attribute. That's not what we're talking about here. This imputed righteousness is not a divine attribute. This imputed righteousness is the righteousness of a creature obeying perfectly God's righteous standards. So imputed righteousness is something that pertains to the creature to make that creature come into conformity with the Creator who is himself righteous. Now the problem and the dilemma is that all other religions substitute for imputed righteousness human works. All of them do this in some way, shape, or form. You can lay your last dollar that every heresy known to man does this. It denies imputed righteousness. It's one of the great satanic ploys because what Satan wants to do is to get our eyes off of he who is righteous onto ourselves or onto something else other than him. And he does so by deluding us into thinking that we generate merit because we're so good. Yeah, we've done bad things, but we've also done a lot of good things. And the good things outweigh the bad things. That kind of story. The old scales problem. And that's at the heart of every false religion. Now, we want to pursue this a little further. If you look down the bottom, page 72, the last sentence, they, as the first humans, Adam and Eve, were to produce tangible and intangible goods and services. So let's go back to Genesis 1. I'm trying to make this as non-religious as possible. Because the more religious that you make it, the more we think we understand it and we don't. We skip it. So if you turn to Genesis 1, the original commission given to man. And because we're going to use the word imputed, we want to do a little exercise here. So we understand the content and the meaning of imputed righteousness. Two words want to get firm down the meaning of both of those words. The word to impute 
verb, and the noun, that which is imputed, righteousness. Well, in Genesis 1, 26, God says, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, birds of the sky, cattle, all the earth, and so on. Verse 28, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and so forth. That's the function man was given. That is what God wants man to do. That is where man screws up, and when he rebels against God, he does not rule the creation properly. In Genesis chapter 2, God says, and it is a specialized version of the previous large-scale command, and he, he says he puts man in the garden, verse 8, placed man whom he had formed, Genesis chapter 2, verse 8, and out of the ground, Lord God caused all this to happen. He made a garden as pleasing food, a tree of life, and so on. And a river flowed and gives the environment. And then he says, in uh, verse 16, 17, he tells him what he can't do, so forth. And God makes a helper, in verse 18. And the story goes on how he did that. But the idea there is that he was put a man, verse 15, into the garden to till it to produce something. Now, if you think in images, and if you're a student of the Bible and the Word of God, try to think in terms of images a lot, because the Bible's filled with images. And images, if you'll think in terms of images, it'll stimulate your imagination. And if your imagination's stimulated, it'll make it a lot easier to apply. That's why back, if those of you who remember the days when we never had a TV, and we had radio, only, you all had an image of this voice that you heard in the radio. Well, your mind stirred up these images. And I remember after a while you'd see these people on television. When television came out, you think, good grief. That isn't the way I thought of it. That doesn't, person doesn't look like the way I imagine him to look. Um, greatest letdown of my life was when I first saw The Lone Ranger on TV. It wasn't the way I conceived it from the radio program. But the point is that the imagination is powerful. And God's triggers our imaginations with the imagery of Scripture. Now, right here is an image that will help you understand this issue of righteousness. So you won't get all spooked out thinking of it only in terms of religious things. What was to be produced? If man is to subdue the earth, let's go right simple back to Genesis 2. What was supposed to be produced? Crops. Food. He was to produce something from the ground. Now, when the curse happens in Genesis 3, verse 18, what happens to the produce? See, man's purpose was to till the ground to bring it forth, to make the earth produce, to be productive. All of, that's why people wonder, why in Genesis 2 is it talking about gold and water and all the rest of it? Why is it doing that? Those are the natural resources that God has blessed creation with so man can do something. Man isn't supposed to be just be sitting, doing nothing. We're supposed to be working and producing something useful. And so, in Genesis chapter 3.18, when the curse comes, the problem is, cursed is the ground, verse 17, because of you. In toil you shall eat of it. Meaning that the earth now resists our dominion, 
We're still left trying to produce. The problem is the earth rebels against us. So the image is easy to think of. It's the weeds. It's the thorns. It's the thistles. And you want fruit and you have to work ten times harder now in a fallen world than you would have had to have worked before. In a way, that's therapy, by the way. Because leisureness with a sin nature breeds trouble. And one of the great therapeutic devices of suffering in the world is that it makes us so weak because we're constantly having to deal with this problem or that problem or something else problem. It keeps us looking upward. And if we didn't have that constant resistance, we would really get into some really sophisticated forms of sin. So, it is a therapy, a built-in therapy to all the thorns and thistles. But right now, just think of the image. Plants, flowers, vegetables, fruit, okay? The produce. And the earth, as it, the garden here, is the only place planted in earth, apparently. In other words, God planted the garden, and outside of the garden, there's not necessarily fruitful trees. I don't think you can show from the scripture that the first... Uh, the, the earth and, and the seventh day it had trees and everything but the, the fruit bearing stuff was in the garden and if Adam had to expand his family the idea was he would literally take over the acreage outside the garden and grow and expand and he would carry the seeds with him he'd produce for them and as he grew the picture would be that oh he completes the creation so that's the economic force. And we, we, the study of man's productivity is what? So it's a study of economics. Economics. Now, what's one of the central occupations of economics? How to deal with value. How to price something. And we all go into the store and we look at this and we decide to buy this or not buy this and so on. And we're all of a sudden we're looking at it, we're putting value on it, pricing goods, pricing services. Uh, different people price it different levels. But how we price something reveals our value system. And in the ebb and the flow, and this is why the free market capitalism is basically the most biblical system because it allows a freedom of valuation. You don't have a bunch of bureaucrats with their arbitrary standard trying to price everything the way they say. The free market operates. This is why you have the commodities exchanges. This is why you have the stock markets. If we didn't have the stock market and the commodities exchanges and the futures market, there'd be no way to price goods and services throughout the globe. It would be up to the group of people like the communists tried it. Some eight people get in a smoke-filled room and figure out prices. doesn't work. So, in economics, we're pricing. What is it we're pricing? The products of man. Now, the act of pricing is to impute. That's where that verb means. So now we're getting at the image of impute righteousness. It means to credit or price something. To price a good, price a service. In this case, our economic work on earth, pricing a good or a service here that so-and-so did or a company did or this and that, we want to buy this, we don't want to buy this, 
We, we evaluate whether we want to save a dollar here or spend it here, etc., etc. All that's economic activity. We all are familiar with it. It's everyday life. But look, who created all of life? God did. Now, up here in the creator level, he has something analogous to our pricing. Just as we, every day of our life, price goods and services, he prices. Now, his valuation system is perfect. And what he's doing is pricing not just nuts, bolts, shoes, and toothpaste. What he is pricing is our choices and what we have brought forth as fruit. He prices us. He prices our lives. He puts a price or a value upon them. And that pricing is imputing. So imputed righteousness has something to do with being credited with a righteousness. The problem is, in Genesis 3, we're supposed to bring forth fruit, goods, services out of the, out of the resources. After the fall, what comes out? Junk. And even to get the junk to come out requires a lot of work. Now, this imagery of a fouled-up agricultural productivity, if you'll turn now to Proverbs 24, the Bible carries this forward in many places. I would just take two places tonight just to skim, show you that this imagery carries from cover to cover to the Bible. And that's why this imagery is worthwhile remembering and tucking away when you get into these questions and you get too theological about it. I'm trying to avoid getting too theological here. In Proverbs chapter 24, verse 30. Now here's an example in the book of Proverbs of a lazy person. There's a work ethic in the Bible. Work didn't happen because of the fall. Adam and Eve had a job to do before the fall. Labor is not bad. Some people get the idea that labor is bad. Labor is the result of the fall. No, it isn't. God worked six days and rested the seventh. Some people think he rested six days and worked one day. It's like I'd like to do. No, that's not the way it works. God, the first, isn't it remarkable? The first picture you see of our biblical God is as a laborer. As one who is working. That's the first picture you've got of God in the Bible. Working. And the last picture you've got of the Bible is, it's all done. He's got a job to do. He gets to it. He gets it done. And it's over and finished. God is a laborer. Now here, in verse 30, is the opposite. I passed by the field of the sluggard and by the vineyard of the man lacking sense. It was completely overgrown with thistles. Its surface was covered with nettles. Its stone wall was broken down. When I saw it reflected upon it, I looked and I received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding the hands to rest. Then your poverty will come as a robber and your want like an armed man. That's wisdom for living in this world system. The work ethic doesn't disappear after the fall. In fact, it gets more important after the fall because what this says, if we don't labor, then the results of the fall overtake us more painfully. Now let's say, well, what's this all got? I still don't see the connection with sin. Okay. Let's come to the New Testament now. Hebrews chapter 6. Same imagery. But now look at the application. 
Hebrews chapter 6, verse 7. Now here is where the imagery gets joined to the higher function of man living before God. And Hebrews chapter 6 is one of those warning passages. And you'll notice in chapter 6, um, verse 1, it says, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works of faith toward God, and so forth. And it warns about, verse 6, It's impossible to renew them to repentance, since they shall crucify themselves as the Son of God. Now, verse 7 uses the same work imagery of the garden to characterize belief and unbelief and the larger spiritual dimension of man's life. In verse 7 of chapter 6, For the ground that drinks the rain, which often falls upon it and brings forth vegetation, useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless. Now, talking about the land here, not talking about the people who farm the land. It's talking about the land that is farmed by the people. Notice that the blessing in verse 7 is upon the ground that is fruitful. In verse 8, but if it, subject, refers to it, the ground, if the ground yields thorns and thistles, it's worthless and is close to being cursed and it ends up being burned. Burn it off. Now, clearly, this image isn't just brought in here accidentally. There's a picture here of worthless ground. Now, let's go back and combine these images into the name of, of ourselves. The name of the human race. What is the name of the human race in the Bible? Adam. And what's the name of the ground? Adamah. Why is Adam called Adam? Because he was made of the ground. Saul, what's the closest earth to your soul? Your body. This that we walk around in. This is the ground that's closest. The flesh is the ground that's closest to us. I mean, we talk about the, the, you know, the flower bed and all the weeds and the problem there. We've got a closer problem. And that is our own flesh, our own physical flesh. It's part of the ground. It's derived from the ground. Now, the problem is, is does our flesh produce fruit or does it produce thorns and thistles? In the fallen state, our flesh can only produce what? Death. It can only produce thorns and thistles. It's worthless. It's cursed. So here you have the imagery slowly coming over now and what looked like it was a simple gardening thing back in the Garden of Eden. Now it gets a little heavier, gets deeper, gets more profound. And we realize that our physical bodies are that we producing in this life or aren't we? Well, the fall of man forces our bodies to produce nothing except sin and human good. It produces things called good. But those things that are called good are inherently still worthless because they're maybe pretty thorns and pretty thistles instead of ugly thorns and ugly thistles. But thistles it is. Thistles they are, whether good or bad. So 
if that's the case, what do we do about righteousness problem? Well, let's turn to Deuteronomy 25, all the way back to the Pentateuch. And in Deuteronomy 25, we have a court law. This is, this is the section of Deuteronomy in the Mosaic Law Code that deals with instructions to judges who are holding trials. In Deuteronomy 25.1, this is God's direction for a courtroom. It is God's direction for the juridical function of society. This is, in a nutshell, this is like one of the Ten Commandments applied to the judiciary proceedings. It says in Deuteronomy 25.1, if there is a dispute between men and they go to court and the judges decide their case, they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. That's the essence of a court. Now think about it for a minute. Justify the righteous one and condemn the wicked one. The act of justifying doesn't produce the righteousness, does it? In a courtroom. The person who was declared to be righteous was righteous before he came into the courtroom. The court officially recognizes that, and the act of officially recognizing it is called by the verb justify. You justify the righteous one. Okay, now if we are sitting here with a cursed ground that makes up our bodies, we have been told that we are supposed to produce fruit to him, and all we produce is thorns and thistles, so we don't produce any righteousness. Do we want to go to court and be judged by God for that? I don't. And you shouldn't either. Now the dilemma is, how then can we be justified? And the Old Testament saints knew this. As you come forward toward the New Testament, the stop of the book of Psalms, Psalm 143. This is one that Paul, in Romans, uses. So, I want, it's good, I want to show you this because I don't want to leave the impression that somehow Paul just thought all this up and it wasn't there in the Old Testament. Yes, it was there in the Old Testament. And yes, Old Testament saints struggled with this. Verse 2, Psalm 143. Classic reference. If you don't have any other reference in the Old Testament, write this one down. Because this is a reference that is so important that Paul uses it in his epistles. Here's where Paul got the idea from under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Psalm 143, verse 2. Here's the psalmist. And look what his prayer is. He says... Do not enter into judgment with thy servant. Now here's a guy who is got a he's born again out of he's he's you know equivalent to be born again in the Old Testament. He's believed on what promises were available to him, just like we believe on what promises are available to us. But the Holy Spirit has taught him that all he is is a sinner. And so, therefore, in verse 2, he says, Do not enter into judgment with thy servant, for in thy sight, and here it is, here's where Paul got his doctrine from, 
For in thy sight no man living is righteous. Old Testament, not new. Old Testament teaches this. That is a revelation of Old Testament saints who had meditated upon the law and God's demands. Now contrast this just for a minute. Let's contrast this with Islam. In Islam, all that Islam does is give more rules to man to follow. And it says, Allah wants you to obey Him. And you better obey Him because you're going to be judged by Him. And He's going to take your good works and He's going to balance them with the bad works. See, same thing happens in all these cults and false religions. And maybe you'll get saved if your good works outweigh your bad works. Is that what verse 2 says here? If you look carefully at verse 2, the only conclusion you can come to is no matter how many good works you do, we are still not righteous. Let's go over to Isaiah 64. In Isaiah 64, one of the, this is another passage in the Old Testament. Notice, Old Testament. Not New Testament, Old Testament. In Isaiah 64, verse 6, here's what God's evaluation of good works is. For all of us have become like one who is unclean, just like a leper. All our what deeds? All our bad deeds? No. All our good deeds. All our righteous deeds are as a filthy garment. All of us wither like a leaf. Our iniquities like the wind take us away. Now that's the Old Testament evaluating our nature. Okay, now if that's the case, how can we be justified? And the dilemma has always been how. Think of the psalmist back in 143 verse 2. Think of this guy. Can you imagine talking to him? You know, the guy's on a talk show, okay? And you can imagine being, hey, guy, you really believe that no living person is righteous? That's right. Well, son, what are you going to do with your life? What's your hope for life? He would have had to have said, God is somehow going to deal with it. I don't know how he's going to deal with it. But Yahweh tells me to trust in him. He tells me that life is with him. I know that I'm unrighteous. I know that all I produce is thorns and thistles. He, I know His grace. He's gracious to me. But I can't stand in His, his courtroom. So what's the deal? And the only, he's, he would not have had a clear-cut answer other than God is going to deal with it. I trust that Jehovah God, who has given me all these promises, is going to take care of me somehow. I don't know how. Now, if you come to the New Testament in Romans 3, that's the breakthrough. The whole thing is resolved in Romans chapter 3. And this is where Paul, why he was so excited about the gospel. Because in Romans chapter 3, he says, verse 26, for the demonstration, oh, let's look at verse 25 whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, verse 25, right here, the last clause in verse 25, look at it. 
That's what was going on in the Old Testament. That is what was going on with that psalmist who wrote Psalm 143, verse 2. God passed over the sins previously committed. So in the Old Testament, he was passing over the sins. But it says he didn't forgive them. He was just passing over them until such a time would come that the sin issue would be dealt with. Now we come to verse 26. For the demonstration, that's the cross, the demonstration of His righteousness at the present time that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Notice the, notice the coalescence. This is the solution to the dilemma that God may be just that is, that he may be absolutely righteous and uncompromising and true to his own attribute of righteousness and yet at the same time be able to declare as a courtroom, remember the verb, what did the verb mean? Took you to Deuteronomy 25. What's a good judge do? He justifies the righteous. Well, how can a good judge justify a crook? And that's the mystery of the cross here. Because of the cross, God has a way to justify the unrighteous without violating his righteousness. And the way he does that is because he imputes righteousness to us. Now notice, the righteousness isn't of our hearts. God doesn't look down and say, oh geez, there's righteousness in here somewhere? And says, oh yeah, well, okay, I think I see a little bit, I'll justify that. The righteousness isn't in us. This is all, these flowers are not acceptable. This is thorns and thistles. He's not looking to here to see righteousness. And yet he's crediting righteousness as being there. Well, how can he credit righteousness to be there if the righteousness isn't there? The answer is because he is crediting the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, and that's the whole four Gospels, lived a perfect life. It was Jesus Christ as God-man. That's what that kenosis, impeccability was all about a year or so ago when we were working through it. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. Because Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, what did that show? That showed that a human is... that You know you heard that, to, err is to, to be human is to err, or to err is human, or whatever it is, the proverb. That's not true. Jesus was human and he didn't err once. So next time you hear somebody toss that one out in the conversation, take a little salt and jump onto it. Say, hey, that's not true. I, I, I remember, I know one person, but you can't even know his name. I know one person who was a human being and never aired once. And, and, it's just, and then you just go on with the conversation like you're talking about the Saturday Night Football game and just see if, it, see if the hook gets in a little bit. Okay? Point is that here Jesus Christ generates righteousness and he becomes a stand-in for Adam now. Now we don't understand all this, but in Romans chapter 5, people say, oh, I think original sin is so horrible. Oh, it's just disgusting that you Christians say that because Adam sinned, you were all sinners. I wasn't there. Don't blame me for what Adam and Eve did. That is morally wrong. Well, in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, there's a reason why God designed our unity in Adam that everybody fusses about. In Romans 5, verse 12, just as through one man 
sin entered into the world and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. Now let's look at the argument here. One man, sin, entered into the world. Well, obviously Adam. Death came as a result of sin. Death spread to all men because all sinned. Past tense. And the debate has always been, what does the verb mean at the end of verse 12? What's that verb sinned mean? When it says, because all sinned. How could you sin if you didn't exist in Adam's time? Well, verse 13 is the reason how, why Paul's saying this. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam till Moses. Why does he say until Moses? What happened with Moses? The Mosaic Law came, which outlined the penalties of death for sin. But he says if you go behind the law, historically, prior to the giving of the story, between that period of time, between Adam and Moses, did people die? Okay. What Paul then says is, on what basis? Why did everybody die before Moses? People could only die before Moses if they were condemned to die. And what were they condemned for? They were condemned for something. And it says, uh, even over those, verse 14, who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him to come. So God designed the human race right from the start in the Garden of Eden so that the representative up here, Adam, the first guy in the chain, what he does affects the whole chain. So Adam sins, and that automatically causes us all to be sinners. Now, oh, that's unfair. Ah, but wait a minute. Because he designed the human race in this pyramidal form, it means if Jesus becomes a second Adam, what happens now? His righteousness spreads to the whole second pyramid, just like Adam's sin spread throughout the first pyramid. Difficult. This is hard. But it involves the idea that every person who trusts in Jesus Christ is justified not on the person. God accepts you and God accepts me only because of what he sees in his son. So we don't get religiously fat-headed about all the good and wonderful things we do. And that's not to say they are not important. It's just to get the perspective right. Our standing doesn't depend on who and what we are. It depends on who Christ is, what he did. And there's the emphasis between Protestantism and Catholicism. Catholicism insists that you are justified on the basis of Christ's righteousness plus the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. The doctrine of justification inside Roman Catholicism is not the same as the doctrine of justification inside Protestantism. That's what the Reformation was about. The problem today is we have such sloppy thinking due to the fact that in the school system we're never challenged for any big questions because every time you deal with a big question you're into a religious issue and you can't have religion, the lawyers all say. So therefore, since we throw out religion, we throw out all the big discussions and the kids grow up learning trivia. 
learning a lot of facts, brilliant facts. Ooh, I can do eight different software programs in my computer. Well, bully for you. What does that do for eternity? That's not doing anything. The big substantive issues can't be thought of. We can't even understand why the Reformation happened. That's why we have evangelicals getting together with Catholics for different things. Now, I'm not saying don't get, we don't get along. Catholicists, Catholics have been very faithful to hold to certain things we hold dear to. Catholic, Catholicism has exalted the person of Jesus Christ. And we agree with them there. Catholicism has taken a hard line on the value of human life. And we agree with them there. And we can be co-belligerents with them there. But just because I sit with my Catholic friend and we're co-belligerents on this issue and that issue doesn't mean we agree over here. And we don't agree over here, and it's, there's a difference, there's a completely different idea here. What we're teaching tonight in imputed righteousness is utterly unacceptable to Roman Catholics. What we're saying tonight is that the basis of our acceptance with God is because of righteousness that is being presented to God the Father in heaven by the Son. It isn't dependent on something going on here. With Catholicism and sloppy evangelicals, it's God is working a wonderful thing in my life. Yes, He is. But He's not finished with it. And the body, this thing that we call the flesh, is condemned. It still cranks out stuff. That's why in Romans chapter 6 and 7 it says, mortify the deeds of your body. Why do you have to mortify them if they're okay? You see, Jesus hasn't, until we're resurrected, our flesh is fallen. So, the fallen flesh is not acceptable. So, we're not acceptable before the Father other than through the Lord Jesus Christ. The difference is that the Protestant Reformation said that you can have assurance of salvation now because the basis of our salvation is finished. It's the Lord Jesus Christ's work that is finished. So, Martin Luther, with his struggles as a priest, said, I can rest, finally. I have peace with God. Because, see, what Luther was having the problem was, he was introspecting and saying, you know, do I have enough good works here? I think I got enough good works. And always looking and, the, what, you know, contemplating his navel. And all he saw was his shortcomings. Because any mature Christian knows that the Holy Spirit teaches us and he makes us aware of all the crud. And it never stops. You can be a Christian for 10 years, 15 years, 40 years. It doesn't make any difference how many years you've been a Christian. Holy Spirit still points out stuff. So you're still aware of stuff that, that stands between you and God. That has to be confessed, has to be dealt with. It never stops. And Luther knew that. So he said, if it never stops, and my justification depends on what's going on here, I have no assurance of salvation. And this is what almost drove the guy crazy until he got straightened out by going to the text of Scripture instead of listening to Mother Church. He went to the text of Scripture and said, Oh, yeah, the text of Scripture says the righteousness is Jesus' righteousness, not mine. So, imputed righteousness, one of the great things that Jesus Christ provides for every believer the righteousness is of the same quality for every believer. 
Young believers, older believers, believers of this race, believers of that race. It's all the same righteousness. It's all of Christ. Nothing of us. It's Chinese Christians, Korean Christians, Asian Christians, European Christians, American Christians, Latin American Christians, African Christians. All have the same righteousness in Jesus Christ. That's a possession that is true for every believer. Now, we don't have time tonight to go on to the next one, but on the bottom of page 73, the second great thing that Jesus Christ does is that he has provided a route from mortal history into immortal history through the death and resurrection. This is, if you thought imputed righteousness is challenging to understand, this is another ripper. This is very difficult to understand, but we've gone through some of the background today, and which I did, by the way, under imputed righteousness. It's repeated here on page 74 of the notes. You'll see Romans 5 again. But just as Adam could experience nothing except physical death, let's go do a thought experiment for a moment, uh, and maybe this will help. Let's suppose Adam and Eve didn't sin. Thought experiment. What do you suppose would have happened had Adam and Eve not sinned? Now, it's speculative, okay? This is not some straight answer to this. But <clears throat> theologians hypothesize that if Adam and Eve hadn't sinned, they would have ultimately been translated. By translated, we mean the natural body would have become a resurrection body. Now, why do they say that? Because the natural body that Adam and Eve had at the point of creation was potentially mortal. Well, it was mortal. It was liable to death. It was not eternally secure physically. Because the first time they sinned, boom, it would self-destruct. So the natural body, as perfect as it was, made in the Garden of Eden, had a built-in self-destruct mechanism such that when it sinned, boom, it would start dying. The resurrection body has no such self-destruct mechanism in it. The resurrection body, once it comes into existence, goes forever. That's why all people are resurrected, both those who go to heaven and go to hell. That's one of the things that makes hell hell, because you can't get out of it. The resurrection body is forever. You're stuck with it. You don't want to get the wrong resurrection body. Now. The Lord Jesus, because of his righteousness, goes to the cross, he is resurrected. Now, Jesus' resurrection is unique because until Jesus rose from the dead, what do you suppose most people would have thought, Jewish people, Jesus' day, disciples, what was their idea of resurrection? If you, if you did an interview and asked Matthew before Jesus rose from the dead, before Matthew had an inkling this was going to happen, what do you suppose Matthew would have said? Ah, Joseph, any, any of the guys. They would have said, typical Jewish view, well, the resurrection happens in the future. The resurrection is the last chapter of history. That's when everything ends and we go into the eternal state. They knew that. 
and they knew of resurrection. That's when they thought of resurrection. Never dreamed of resurrection happening now, at this moment of history, ahead of that time. So when Jesus rose from the dead, now we got a new thing here. Whoa! What is this? We got a resurrection here, but history doesn't end. It keeps on going. We got a, as one theologian said, it's taking a piece off of the eternal state, bringing it forward in time, and putting it right here. That's the significance of the resurrection of Jesus. It's not just a lonely miracle that happened in the city of Jerusalem. The resurrection is the beginning of a cosmic conclusion to history. But it's thankfully, it's only started with one person, the second Adam, Jesus. Now, what we're going to struggle with next week is that just as we share Christ's righteousness and we get credited for it, that's imputed righteousness, so also we appear to somehow participate in his death and resurrection. So that when the Holy Spirit regenerates us, he is taking eternal life that belongs in eternity, moving that eternal life here, dropping it in our soul, and he can do so because positionally that part of us isn't going to change for all eternity. It's that part of us that will be encased in a resurrection body now. And he can do that because from our positional standpoint, we are seen in some way to be in Christ. And because we're in the resurrected one, we share this partial uh, experience of his resurrection. Not of our bodies, but of the regenerated human spirit. So, it's a tough one. But that's what Romans 6 is talking about. And that's something else that... Uh, that the Bible brings up about the Lord Jesus Christ and our position. So we'll get to that next week. Father, we thank you for our time tonight. And we thank you that you have provided for all of these wonderful blessings. <clears throat> we look to you to make us more sensitive, to have a more accurate grasp of the riches that we have in the Lord Jesus, and that as we walk through a hostile world environment, under the attacks of the wicked one, that we can get our eyes off of those things, at least momentarily, long enough to see our destiny in Christ, to rejoice, to enjoy the blessings that you have given us that are ours to enjoy this moment. We thank you now through his name. Amen. Okay, um, we're going to have some Q&A. Maybe uh, we can close out a little earlier tonight, since we're starting earlier. Yes, George. The, uh, the contemplation of, of Adam not sitting there, all that, how does the fact
We what? We cannot. So, um, how, how does it equate? How, how does it, I mean, it really doesn't matter whether, it really doesn't matter whether our body could self-destruct or not because we cannot sin. So we'd never know whether it could self-destruct. Well, the, the, the question about the self-destruction of the body, the whole point is that you want to classify in your thinking the difference between mortal history and immortal history. And get that in mind. Immortal history, uh, I don't think I have it with me tonight, but you all have seen that evil chart. Remember in the evil chart, good and evil, when they're separated, it's eternally separated. In immortal history, it's ethically fixed. There's no transitions. It's in mortal history where you can have transitions between good and evil. And mortal history is a sort of um, time that began, at least in the garden, with a probationary period. Probationary being that it was possible to sin, but would the couple sin? And the point being that knowing what we know about the eternal state, it's not likely that God would have persisted the probationary period forever. So it would have ended. But in order to end, you'd have to end in resurrection. So that, well, that's all I was trying to say. It's just a way I had of expressing, maybe I didn't do it clearly, but what I was trying to get at was that when you start messing around with something like the resurrection, what we have to be careful we don't do is to make the resurrection seem like it was a, almost an isolated, lonely, singular miracle that happened in Jerusalem in the first century with Jesus. We have to, instead of doing that, we want to see that lonely, singular act of Jesus rising from the dead on the third day as something that belongs to the future. And that in the Old Testament mind, would, they would never have dreamed of a resurrection happening and then history keep on going. That would have been the end of history right there. So when Jesus rose from the dead, now we've got a situation, highly anomalous, by the way, think about it. When Jesus walked around and made his appearances in the resurrected body, he was coexisting with people in not resurrected bodies. So for a 40-day period, we had this anomalous condition, never before seen in human history, of resurrected people and non-resurrected people coexisting on the same planet. And it produces all kinds of strange things. And, and of course, this is why the, the, the disciples and the apostles felt awe when they see his resurrection. I mean, imagine sitting here in a room with all the doors shut, and then, boom, here he is right in our midst. And he's not a ghost. You know, you just don't walk through him, but you walk up to him and you bump into him. Now, how, did, how come he's got this body that just appeared, didn't come through, you know, come through the wall, or how did he do it? And it's not a spirit. It's a, it's a body. 
So when we talk about resurrection, we've got to pull some of these other things in. We're pulling in immortal history. We're pulling in some awfully, awfully big ideas here. So it's, that's what I was trying to get at. You can't just take the lonely miracle of Jesus and think of it as, as just confined to the grave and, oh, gee, that was a neat thing that happened to his body. It's more than that. A lot more than that. But now, if they had, if they had accepted Christ, and John the Baptist had been Elijah, that whole discussion that we got into before, then the end would have come at that time. The kingdom would have come. And then the resurrection body would have been set up as the Jews had always anticipated. Yeah, history would have gone on according to Old Testament. Well, of course, there would be details in it that weren't, weren't revealed in the Old Testament because now history would be in different, going a different way. But, um, yeah, I mean, history always has the what-ifs. And that's, why, that's what's lacking, George, in some of our ultra-reformed people's minds is they can't conceive of history that has this inherent flexibility in it. And it's, and it's not flexibility in God's sovereign will. Because, like, that's why last week we went through Acts 27. Now, if you uh, go through Acts 27 and the shipwreck, uh, it's a classic instance of sovereignty and human responsibility. You get no impression whatsoever of any kind of fatalism in that narrative. Yet you get all the impression that it's going to come out okay. But the pathway to coming out okay involves human responses. Just like the pathway to you surviving until the Lord calls you home involves you eating three times a day by choice. Now, how it all works, I have no idea how it works. Nobody else does either. But you can't fall into this, this hypermold and try, you, you ruin the thing because it's our inability to rationally synthesize all this stuff together. We're not the only, all people have the same problem. I mean, you're, the, the guy that runs down to the store and grabs his last dollar for the, to buy the horoscope to find out what his fortune is for the day has the same problem. Why do you buy a horoscope? Think about it. If the horoscope predicts what's going to happen, then what's going to happen is going to happen, so what are you going to do about it? Well, we can do something about it. We can kind of do it. All right, now, now you're ooching. So don't come to me as a Christian and say, I got a problem. You've got a problem. You've got the same problem, friend. See? Yes, Debbie. Yes. And the fact that um, solid is for the maturing and about the teaching of the 
Yes. We're trained by that and we distinguish between good and evil. And then, you know, like the beginning of six starts off like saying that, like the teaching of Christ and repentance and um, faith in God, all of those things are kind of put in elementary teaching. I guess that, so that, that causes me So explain. <laughs> well, um, the, the question here is, uh, what? It almost seems like it's better to be the thief on the cross. You know, it almost seems like you're safer to be the thief on the cross than to have lived a life claiming that you were claiming belief in Christ. Mm-hmm. It's like it seems like there's really heavy duty responsibility here mm-hmm. that seems to go beyond just. We're in a, a fallen body that that is constantly trusting in Christ. I guess I don't know. It's well, like this is a bigger step here. Yeah. Well, the 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 way. That uh, the the question is is Hebrew the warning passages in Hebrews which are typical warning passages elsewhere in the Bible. The problem is that it, there's no question starting from the imputed righteousness issue. There's no question of that doctrine not providing security now because in the context of Romans it says therefore we have present tense peace with God. And the peace of God that is given in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, is the peace that flows exactly from this doctrine we covered tonight. That our righteousness and security before God depends not upon our works, but depends on Christ's work credited to our account. What then do we make of the warning passages? There are obviously three ways to handle the warning passages. And one way that has been true of what we call the Arminian branch of Christianity, the Wesleyan Methodist branch, um, has been to interpret those as people who have believed and who have fallen away. After so, They really are not of the final elect. They, they've fallen away. Um, John Wesley himself was, was believing in this. George Whitfield, this was one of the friction points early on between him and the people in Church of England. So the Armenian tradition has held that the warning passages are warning against loss of salvation due to sins that are committed in the life. The problem with that approach is that once that becomes a possibility, it undermines this issue of justification in the sense that if the warning passages speak of loss of salvation, then in the present life now, while we can talk imputed righteousness, on a practical level it does me no good because I don't know whether I have the imputed righteousness. Now, the second approach to the warning passages is what classical Calvinism does, which says that the warning passages are written to those who have not truly believed yet who are the mere professors of things. 
and that they fall away because they never were regenerated. They were just hangers-on. I don't think you have to take either one of those approaches. I think there's a perfectly sensible third approach that makes sense of the passage exegetically and doesn't get you in all this doctrinal hot water. And the way I would approach it, and it's not me, I mean, it's, it's the third approach, is that the Bible, when it speaks of salvation, isn't always talking about eternal salvation. We Christians do that. If you say somebody is saved, 99 out of 100 times, there's an automatic thing that goes on in your mind that says that's eternal salvation. But that's not how the Bible speaks of salvation. All during the Old Testament, if you took a concordance and went through the Old Testament, looked up the verb save and the noun salvation, I would dare say that 95% of the occurrences in the Old Testament is talking about physical deliverance. Now, here. For example, the blessings and the cursings on Israel as a nation. Talking about the salvation of the nation. I'm talking about historical salvation. And that is the mentality bred into the Jewish community. This is why... Uh, you can use the word salvation in a physical phase two sense for this life. Uh, I'll give you an example where it happens. It's in communion service in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, where it says if we judge not ourselves, we will be judged. And it's an invitation before we partake of the elements in communion to, to be, not be judged. Now, that's using the word judge that could refer to eternal judgment. Same, ver same verb. But in that context, it, thankfully, it goes on to explain what the judgment is. It's physical discipline. Sickness and terminal illness can come from sinning against God. It doesn't say all sickness is due to that. It just says that sickness can be ca caused by discipline. And if the pe person doesn't confess their sins, they're going to check out whether the doctor is there or not. God will kill believers to get them out of here. And it's interesting that he, the reason is that to minimize the damage to their soul. So if believers are messing around, God can kill you, can kill us, out of mercy. Now, the question comes, to get back to Debbie's question, the question comes to the warning passages in Hebrews. However you take Hebrews 6 that Debbie raised, the question of, Hebrews has about five other passages in it, same thing. You've got to solve all of them the same way, which means it's your whole approach to the book of Hebrews that's involved here. Now, the book is written to what group, Gentiles or Jews? Jews. Jews. Ah. So now we're talking about a Jewish community. And we're using the word salvation to a Jewish community shortly after the time of the resurrection. Jewish community thought historically of salvation in a physical sense. After Christ died and rose again from the dead, the nation came under a cycle of discipline that was going to last 40 years, from 30 AD 
to 70 AD. And in 70 AD, the city of Jerusalem would be invaded and the nation would be destroyed, period. Jews would die by the millions in the Roman army from the Roman invasion. And the book of Hebrews can be thought of as a warning to the Jewish Christians of the time and telling them, because remember in Thailand, Acts 21, what were the Jewish Christians doing? We just went through Acts 21. They were not moving out. They were hovering around the temple, staying in Jerusalem, staying enmeshed in this cocoon of the Torah, failing to see the larger scale gospel as it pertained to the non-Jewish world, not moving out, not being witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world, but just hanging in there inside their comfort zone, which was Judaism. The guy who's done a lot of work on this approach to Hebrews is Arnold Fruchtenbaum, who is a Hebrew Christian. And he has a whole series, and I think he's writing commentary, in which he holds to the position that the warning passages in Hebrews are the last address to the nation Israel through the believing community to get with the program or you will be killed. And there will be no, you can repent, try to repent all you want to, when you see Titus coming there, babes, it's all over. You don't have much time. So you get with the program. And so it's a warning to split the Christian Jews out of Judaism that was asking for Roman discipline. So that's a specific version of a third approach, which is that when you see these passages about warning, don't always think in terms of loss of salvation. Think of loss of life. Loss now. God can physically... What's the sin unto death in, in John? Right in the context, he's talking about praying for medical reasons. And then in the same context, he's talking about sin unto death. Now, if you put those two together, what's the nearest context of the sin unto death? It's physical illness problem. So the death there is a physical death. So we tend not to have thought this way. This, I grant you that this is strange to, some, to a lot of us. But that's because we have this mental fixation that every time the New Testament uses salvation, it's talking about eternal salvation, and that is not true. And we have neglected, we really have, we have neglected within our local churches to stress the fact that there is such a thing as chastening. Hebrews chapter 12 talks about it. In fact, Hebrews goes to the point of saying that if you don't see any chastening, if you see somebody who sins and they're not being disciplined by God, it's a sign they probably aren't saved. That you be without chastisement, you're a bastard. Pretty blunt language. So one of the blessings of the Father, we'll get into that when we get on the third person, the first person in the Trinity here on the thing. One of the things God the Father does is he disciplines us. And he can't do it in the immortal history. The only place room for discipline is now. So that, in a nutshell, is, is a third area, a third approach that's used. And again, I didn't invent that. That's been around for a number of years. It's gotten more attention recently because there have been more Hebrews who have become Christians who are in leadership circles who are saying, woe to you Arminians and Calvinists. You guys think too Gentile. Now let, let's introduce a little Jewish thinking here. 
And I, I like to listen to Jewish Christians because I think they bring, they contribute something. They have a. Because what had they seen? Yeah, think of, put yourself back there then. If you were a Jewish believer, and you thought Jesus was the Messiah, and you still entertain the ideas that, Old Testament idea, Messiah is going to bring freedom, and say, hey, you know, I've been a Christian here for ten years, and all I see is Roman soldiers outside my front lawn. And I don't see any deliverance. And I, I really don't see anything's changed. And I'm getting kind of tired of this. And plus the fact, the more the gospel went on, you saw in Acts 21 what was going on. That there was a tremendous socio-political pressure to get hostile to the Christians. So now these people who were fence-sitters are going to have to decide, get on this side of the fence or that side of the fence, but you can't stay on the fence. So at that point in history, it was an awful time for persecution. And the, the historically, if you read what happened later in A.D. 68, I think, or 69, uh, Vespasian brought the Roman army first to surround Jerusalem, and he backed off because he realized after he got his troops in place, he didn't have the logistics to support the campaign, plus the fact he got called back to become Caesar. And so he left his uh, commander, who was Titus, uh, in, in charge of the troops, and Titus said, wait a minute, I got, a, I got an engineering logistics mess here. So he pulled his armies back. Now Jesus had warned in the Mount Olivet Discourse. He said, look, when you see the armies encompass the city of Jerusalem, you get out of here. Now have you thought about it? If the armies encompassed Jerusalem, how do you get out of Jerusalem? Well, the miracle was the armies did encompass Jerusalem, and then they backed off for logistic and engineering reasons, because the Romans did everything orderly. And during that backing out, there were faithful Hebrew Christians that took off. And to this day, the Jewish community resents those people. They call them traitors. And there's a Jewish word for it. I forgot what it is. But they will call a Hebrew Christian to this day by that nasty name. And that nasty name goes back to A.D. 70 when they took off, when the armies split. And they, they, wiped, they took off the city. And then, then came Titus, and he, he surrounded the whole city, and he just destroyed everybody killed everybody, took Jewish slaves, sold them down into Egypt. Uh, some Jewish people fled over to Masada. They spit on some Roman legions. They said, okay, you spit on us? We're going to teach you a lesson too. And so they made four diamonds, formations, and rocks. You can still see them today. You get up on top of Masada, you can see them. And those Roman legions sat there and said, we're going to get you. Oh, you never get us. You, you find out how we're going to get you. So they took Jewish slaves because they knew that if they were going to shoot arrows at them, they wouldn't shoot fellow Jews. So the Roman legions hid behind a wall of Jewish slaves and got them all with buckets and sand, and they spent years building a ramp up the side of Masada. And they said, I told you we are going to get you. Spit on us, huh? Okay. Teach you a lesson. And that's how they conquered Masada. But see, the Jews 
this, this was a pride in the nation. And the only group of Jews that didn't participate in this last stand were the Hebrew Christians. So this is why they are deeply resented within the Jewish community that still has a history of this. Not nice. So. He can kill you for all kinds of reasons. In Hebrews, in First Corinthians 11, it just uh, people were getting drunk in communion service. Kill him. That's what he did. Not necessarily totally abandoned. Um, these people just engage in, in some different versions, flagrant sins, and God had enough of it. Uh, you know, you can't predict what ticks him off necessarily. It could be flagrant. On the other hand, you could have Peter who denied the Lord Jesus and he came back fine. There's a flagrant violation right there. Public. See? And so Peter was preserved. Then some guy gets drunk in Corinth and he gets creamed. Beats me. Okay, that's all we'll talk about next week.